This is The Premise, and I'm your host, Jennifer. Chad Thompson. De- no, Chad I, Thompson's the no, host. I'm the host. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson, the host. <laughs> On the premise, we are speaking with best-selling author Lisa C., whose books include Snowflower and the Secret Fan, The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, Peony in Love, and China Dolls, to name just a few. Her books have been translated in 39 countries, and Amy Tan said this about Snowflower, achingly beautiful, a marvel of imagination. And I can't agree more, Lisa. Your latest book, The Island of Sea Women, will be available in paperback on March 10th this year. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So your work traditionally explores Chinese characters and culture. And I know your great-grandfather, Fong Si, was a Chinese American in LA's Chinatown, which was the impetus for your uh, the impetus for your first book on Gold Mountain, the 100-year odyssey of my Chinese American family, published to great success in 1995. At what point did you know that you would reconstruct your family history and tell this story? Oh, that I, I, I never thought I was going to do that actually. <laughs> so. Um, People had been approaching my family truly for about a hundred years to write a magazine article or a book or even a movie script, and always my family had said no. And there mm. were a couple of reasons for this. On the one hand, I think they had a lot of, um, uh, they were kind of arrogant, you know, like, oh, why should we participate in their project? But on right. the other side of it, there was a lot of shame and embarrassment um, in the mm. family, you know, about things that had happened in the past, you know, um, things that were illegal, for example, like um, bigamy, <laughs> smuggling, mm-hmm. and things like that. So um, I heard there was a kidnapping really, in there somewhere, and a too. kidnapping too, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, a lot about love affairs and people dying, and you know, all those kinds of things that you know, in your family, you don't necessarily want to talk about at all, let alone share with the world. And yeah. then I guess it would have to be something like 30 years ago, a woman named Ruth Ann Lum McCunn, she was a very good um, uh, writer of Chinese-American history, and she called me and wanted to include our family on a book that she was doing on prominent Chinese-American families. And I called my great aunt, and she said, no, never, we don't, we don't participate in things like that. And then two years later, my great aunt turned 80, and I gave her, and the book had just come out, that book, and I gave it to her for her birthday. And the next day, her daughter called and said, you know, my mom realizes she made a mistake. Why don't you come mm-hmm. over? She has some stories she wants to tell you. And that wow. first day, I learned things I had never heard before. And so it just really went from there. But I have to say, even then, I thought, oh, well, maybe this will be one of those Christmas letters that people send out, you know, that I would just have like one page where it has the dates and the names and the places that I could send just to the family. And mm. obviously things got out of hand. Because right. and then I, I ended up doing hand. a couple of magazine articles and I, you know, I thought, oh, I'm done. No, that just one thing kind of led, led to, to another. another. And five years later, there was a book. You can't just open up those floodgates and expect right? to dam it back up again. No. Totally. <laughs> no. And you were working as a freelance journalist, and I think you worked for Publishers Weekly at the time. Is that right? Right. I I was uh, the West Coast correspondent for Publishers Weekly, which meant that I covered everything in publishing west of the Mississippi. And so for mm. those of the people listening who don't know, Publishers Weekly is the trade journal of the yeah. publishing industry. So I was interviewing authors and doing news stories and Actually, at that time, covering this explosive growth of publishing um, in the West, particularly mm-hmm. here in California. Yeah. Well, and it makes sense that, you know, your your work is so deeply rooted in research coming from the journalistic side of writing. That's that's absolutely true. And, I'm, you know, and how you learn to ask questions, mm-hmm. and how you learn to interview people, and how you learn to... Um, get to those sensitive subjects, you know, 
like you brought up the kidnapping. <laughs> this was something I had to work into over about two years before I was actually able to get people to talk about it. So interesting with your, you aunt. know, that journalistic background that I had was was and still to this day invaluable because mm. I'm often interviewing people who have gone through a lot. You know, the yeah. the um, in the island of sea women, these are the free divers um, from an island called Jeju off the tip of South Korea. And while their work is fascinating and that whole culture is fascinating, and people are really, they really want to share that experience and talk about it, but the island itself has some very dark history. Mm. And so, you, you know, it's difficult to talk to people about those times because they don't necessarily want to relive it. But mm -hmm. what I have learned over the years is that, and you might feel the same way just even in your own life, that we don't necessarily dwell on the happy times, we, but we do remember everything when something mm -hmm. awful happens. Goes wrong. You know, if there's a, That's right. You know, if there's an illness in the family or someone dies or, you know, somebody's at war, what, any of those kinds of things, uh, you know, terrible arguments and divorces, you can remember blow by blow by blow and who said what and what people were wearing because since they're so awful and since we don't like to talk about them, I think in many ways we remember all of those details because we're playing them over and over and over again in our heads. Mm -hmm. Which is one of the reasons I think that, you know, memoir is so doing so well these days is because we're looking for something that mirrors our own life that makes us feel like we're not alone. I'm not the yeah, only one who true. had tragedy in my life. Yeah, exactly. I think I, but I, I don't think that that's limited to memoir. I think that's also true in just even fiction in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously there's a lot of fiction where it's, you know, a thriller or a murder mm -hmm. mystery or sci-fi where it's, it's kind of escapism in a certain way, Absolutely. you know, shopaholic books, those kinds of things. But I think with what we call more literary fiction, that why those books resonate so much with us is that we do connect to those characters mm -hmm. and think about, you know, what would I do in that situation? Or, yes, I too lost my mother, or, you know, I too went through this, and, and that we connect through the fictional story. Yeah. To those to those very things that have happened in our own lives, but also that we can place ourselves in situations that maybe we haven't experienced. You write tragedy so well, okay. <laughs> but but I want to say I that, guess that's a compliment. Well, no, no, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but but in that tragedy, there's so much beauty, even in in your most heartbreaking moments. Can you speak to the process that you use to place yourself in the room with your characters and bring them to life so fully? Well, you actually said the very phrase that is what I'd always tell myself, <clears throat> which mm -hmm. is to place myself in the room. And I don't want to be outside looking in. I want to be in the room experiencing these things with the characters. That means, though, that since I'm the writer, you know, I know what's coming. And I know pretty far in advance you know, what's coming. And so starting sometimes, you know, as much as two months out, I'm already kind of preparing myself emotionally mm. for, for going to that place. And I know where I'm going, and I know what's going to happen, but my poor characters don't. And mm -hmm. I think that's, for me, the hardest part. Uh, I remember there was one book, um, uh, Shanghai Girls, and there's a character who is named Sam who commits suicide. And for, a, you know, starting two months out, I did everything I could to change his destiny. I loved him so much. I mean, he's really one of my favorite characters in all of my books. And I tried everything. I mean, really everything I could to save his life, but 
he had his own destiny and that was really, it's almost outside of me. And so when the time came, you know, there I was with him and it's very, it's, it, it is emotionally hard. Sure. Um, the, I wrote about these women writers in the Yangtze Delta in the mid 17th century, women, all women in uh, Peony and Love. And this was a huge group of women writers, more women writers being published in this one area of China than all together in the rest of the world at that time. And they had this belief of you have to cut to the bone to write. And I really believe that that's true, that what writers are doing is they're trying to you know, they are cutting to the bone, but it's your own bones, you know, that you have to go deep inside of yourself to find the, or search for, I guess is the better way to put it, the truth of relationships, the truth of emotions. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's just, it's, it's not like it's physically hard. It's not like laying asphalt in the desert, but it, it is emotionally hard and hard How? to walk away from, yeah. um, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the work day. Yeah. So I'd like to talk about your writing process. Do you have a daily routine? I, uh, first I have to have some good tea and that's really important for me to before I start. Anything. I love having tea when uh, I write. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I've I've am a bit of a tea snob, and so that it's you know what kind of tea I'm going to drink on any particular day. It takes a lot of thought and brewing and all of that, <laughs> and that sort of gets me ready to sit down to work. I you know truthfully, I I will look at my email and look at Twitter and look at Instagram and sort of get some of that stuff out of the way first, just because it's, you know, lurking in the background if I don't. And then I start to write. And when I'm writing, I uh, do a thousand words a day, which is just four pages. Um, I try to work five days a week when I'm writing, but, but actually, you know, books for me take about two years. Mm -hmm. And for me, because of the kinds of books that I write, the research takes the longest amount of time by far, and the mm -hmm. writing is the least amount of time with editing <laughs> somewhere in the middle. So if right. you think about, you know, usually my books are somewhere around 440 pages in the first draft, and at four pages a day, that's what, like 110 days-ish? Wow. And so out of two years, that's not, you know, that's not very much. Mm -hmm. So when I actually think about the writing, there is actual writing, but to me, it's, it's much bigger. And it's, it really is about the research. It's about daydreaming. I spend so much time just kind of staring into the middle distance and mm -hmm. trying to think about, you know, well, what's going to happen next? If this happens, you know, what if, yeah. what yeah. if, I, what if? I agree. I have a writing coach and she has a saying that says, you know, staring out the window counts. Mm -hmm. It counts for a lot. And that's mm -hmm. that time of, you know, staring into that, that distance to imagine it. That's awesome. I, I want to know about your research too. And actually, before I go there, I'm a bit of a tea snob myself. So tell me what your favorite, like, are you a loose leaf kind of gal? And are you big on the temperature of the water? Tell me more about your tea. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. Yes to both. So, uh, you know, I have always been a tea drinker. But when I wrote The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, that mm -hmm. just turned me into a tea snob, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> nice. So I, I'd say, uh, so that book I was writing very specifically about pu'er tea, and oh, I yeah. probably have maybe 50 types of pu'er, and um, some of it is in bricks, some of it is loose. I have um, some tea that's from a single thousand-year-old tree. I have some wow. that is raw. I really love the raw pu'er, especially in the morning. It's 
It's very light and kind of astringent. I think of it as being grassy. And I just love that in the morning. I just find it very, like it perks me up and wakes me up and gets me set for the day. And then as the day goes on, I like to drink um, pu'er that's older and aged and um, darker in color. You know, the the raw pu'er kind of looks like a Chenin Blanc. And the aged pu'er looks more like a black cup of coffee. So it's it's a real range yeah. in the in the color and the taste and all of that. I also love Iron Goddess of Mercy, and I there's a particular uh, man in the Feng Sun uh, tea market in Guangzhou where I get it, and then uh, I also am able to get. Um, a true jasmine tea. So Mm. jasmine tea, you know, I'd say something like 99% of all the jasmine tea in the world is just tea that's been sprayed with jasmine oil. But real jasmine tea, what they do is they have these piles of tea, and then they come in and put about a ton of unopened jasmine blossoms on top of the tea, leave it overnight, And then over the next three days, as the blossoms open, people come in and pick those off. And then they do that nine more times. Mm. So it's a month-long process where the tea leaves are just being infused with with the scent of these opening jasmine blossoms. And you can only get it a certain time of year. And obviously, not very many people make it. And it's expensive. And it's probably really expensive. Yeah, <laughs> it's expensive, and and so you know. But I sort of feel like, well, I don't have many other vices, so this is this is it. You know, this yeah, is this yeah. is it. It's and not a bad vice. When you know, I have a big birthday coming up or something like that. I'll tell my husband, you know, which tea I'd like him to get for me. <laughs> I imagine that you visited quite a few tea Chinese tea houses in the research that you did. Yes, and also you know met. Um, some really serious tea connoisseurs and collectors here. So I get to still do that, you know, in Los Angeles. In Chinatown, too, there's some really beautiful tea there houses are, there. Yeah, but also, um, yeah, there are just different places where you can go. So it's, yeah. it's you know, pretty fascinating. And I think of it, it's a whole you know, culture a lot like, the, you know, the, like the wine, people who love wine, you know, they go to wine mm-hmm. tastings and, mm-hmm. you know, they talk about the terroir and the, oh, the sense of scent of apricot. Well, all of that can be applied to tea as well. It's, it's mm-hmm. actually a pretty similar lingo. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, so our company, Monkey Sea Media, used to be next door to a tea shop here in San Diego. And that's where Chad and I really developed a an understanding of tea and we we didn't realize how good tea could be mm-hmm. so now you know the sacrilege of the tea bag the, ta- oh, <laughs> the tazo <forget> tea bag <laughs> yeah sometimes when i'm in a restaurant you know i'll ask them what kind of tea they have and then mm-hmm. who made it you know what's the mm-hmm. brand and then i'll say just bring like, me oh. hot water <laughs> i'll just have the hot water <laughs> never mind yeah. not not just hot water but 205 degree water <laughs> yeah please. there you go <laughs> Well, that might be a little much to ask in a restaurant, but (laughs) but, but, I guess it depends uh, on the restaurant. So, I mean, I think that, you know, writing routines, they need this, this thing that makes us, puts us in that state of mind. And I can see how having the right cup of tea would really lend itself to getting into that state of mind, into that, that comfort space, Mm -hmm. even if it is staring out the window. So I, I love that picture. Mm Mm-hmm. Let, let's talk a little bit about your research process, if you don't mind. Anything in particular? Or well, just, just how you know, I do it, how I approach yeah. it? Yeah, how you approach it and how you keep it all straight. And I know you share quite a bit of the research on your website. I do. Which, which is really beautiful. You know, when you're yeah. gathering, all, there's, there's so many places you can start. And I'm just curious if you have a process or if it's different every time. No, it's, it actually follows a pretty similar process. So I do think about stories for a very long time before I start writing them. Mm-hmm. So uh, like Tigrill of Hummingbird Lane, I thought about that for 20 years. 
um, Island of Sea Women, 10 years. The new book that I'm working, 26 years. Now, of course, mm. this, this works for me now because I'm a lot older. <laughs> when I was younger, I wasn't waiting 26 years. But I, you know, <laughs> right. I, I, I still do. Even that, you know, even if I think about my first book, it was something, you know, knowing the family and, and always hearing those stories. It's not that I thought, oh, I'm the one who could do it. But it is something that I had thought about a long time. And I think that's part of why that first book took five years was mm-hmm. I, I, I had to sort of think in the ways that I do now over a longer period of time. So, so let's just take the Island of Sea Women as an example. So about 10 years ago, I was sitting in a doctor's office, you know, and how you're sitting sit there and you're flipping through magazines and I saw this tiny article, one paragraph, one small photo of these diving women. And I just thought, this is so incredible. I tore it out of the magazine and took it home. Mm. And yes, you're one I'm of those that person. People. So when you, next time you're in the doctor's <laughs> office and you're like, what happened to this magazine? You'll know the answer. And I, I've got it somewhere. And Some researcher so, somewhere has it. Yeah. And so then it's on my radar. You know, and and over the next, I'd say about eight years, you know, every once in a while, something would sort of pass by and I'd grab it. Sometimes that happens a lot. Some, you know, there are some ideas that I've had where, let's just say, I'd have like a foot high of material collected. And sometimes I have a, a piece of paper <laughs> and that's it. But every sort of everything in between until I decide, okay, this is the one. And then when I decide that, I live very close to UCLA. I go to the research library there. I look on the internet to see what I can find. You don't have to be very careful with the internet, but nevertheless, even if you look on something like Wikipedia, you can look down in the sources mm-hmm. and that will tell you articles and dissertations and books and um then in some cases I'm able to track down the writers of those things. Uh, with the Island of Sea Women, I there's an English language newspaper on the island, and there was one woman in particular who uh, seemed to have a lot of articles about the diving women. And one day I just wrote to her, you know, sent her an email. And she mm. ended up, um, and it turned out she's the uh, actually official ambassador of the Henyo, the, the diving women, to the rest of the world. She's been appointed wow. by the governor. Wait a minute, and the diving so, women have an ambassador? Yeah, they have their own. <laughs> they have their own. But I mean, it's not like a real ambassador, you know, not a real, real ambassador, but a, like, in a, you know, they give her that honorary title. And sure. so she's, so, you know, when I went there, um, she arranged interviews. She took me to see the grand shaman. Um, she introduced me to the governor. Uh, she took me to meet different scholars. So one person like that can open a lot of doors. Anyway, yeah. so I do all of that research as much as I can before I go on the research trip. And then when I, you know, then when I go, some things have been set up in advance, like the things that Anne Hilty, that's that woman's name, had set up for me. But I also, so, you know, those were sort of more official type interviews, but I also mm-hmm. had had set up uh, interviews with particular women who were divers. And then, and so those interviews, they lasted, you know, two to eight hours. They were in people's homes. It was a very intimate experience and much more in depth. But I also did two other things. One was to go where women were going into the sea and where they were in the morning and where they were coming back in the afternoon. And so at both of those times, you know, they're working, but nevertheless, I would say, oh, can I talk to you? <clears throat> and sometimes these women are very direct. They're very loud because <laughs> they've been under the sea for a long time. So their ears aren't so great. So they're quite loud. And Sometimes I'd say, can I talk to you? And they'd be like, no, go away. <laughs> and then other times they'd say, sure, you know, sit down. I'm just, 
uh, getting my tools ready, but yes, I'll talk to you for a few minutes or oh, I'm sorting sea urchins and you know, yeah, sit down and, you know, and then sometimes those would last five minutes and sometimes they'd last about 20 and then they'd say, you know, okay, I'm busy now. I've got to just work. So there were, there were those. And then there was this other category of women and these women are semi-retired, fully retired, maybe they're recovering from an injury and they're in their late 80s, typically late 80s, early 90s. And they sit on the beach and uh, gather and sort the seaweed and algae that's washed ashore overnight. And so um, I would just walk up to them and again, you know, say, can I can we talk for a while? And same thing, you know, I'm busy, go away or sure, sit down. And some of those interviews were my absolute favorites. And mm. uh, I love that experience so much that that's the opening scene of the book. I mean, I had not necessarily intended to have a, a modern day, any, any of the book be in, I mean, it's actually 2008, but in, we'll just say now, Right. Um, but I had just loved that so much and it, the experience of talking to them, the way they viewed the environment around them. I mean, the, like the way they were so aware of everything happening all around them. And I think that's partly because they've had a lifetime under the sea where you have to use, you know, really your peripheral vision to make sure nothing's coming up to eat you, <laughs> you know, right, you yeah. have to be so hyper aware under the sea and doing this very dangerous work. And they, and even, you know, retired, semi-retired, they, they have that. And so how they were, you know, they might be talking to me, but they were also aware of the people who were up on the road or, you know, some mm, women who were mm. 30 feet away and, what were they doing and who were they talking to and and just so aware of all of that so i i just was so impressed with them and and i just i really just loved them so much and one other thing which was i did have four different translators on that trip i was just going to ask that yeah yeah so on the days that i was in on the beach i had uh, a young woman she was a university student and just you know, very smart, so helpful. She was just fantastic. And I won't say this happened with every single woman, but I will say nine out of 10. There would come a moment when they would say to her, you know, oh, could you hold your, your cell phone next to my ear? I need to call my son, my nephew, my grandson. You're so pretty. And he's looking for a wife. <laughs> and I just, again, I just love that so much. So that's, that's in the opening scene of the book. Mm, that's awesome. That's awesome. You, your book. Oh, feature... and then just lastly, just for the research. So then I come home. Okay. And now I do an even deeper dive into research because now I've already, I've learned this, you know, all this new stuff. So I had the first round, you know, before I go on the research trip, then I do the research trip. And then when I come back, it's even deeper. And that research actually continues all the way through truly like to the last page. Mm -hmm. So an example of that was um, these women historically would do itinerant work. So they would go to dive um, for, you know, and young, like 15 years old, would be gone for six to nine months out of the year, diving off the coast of China, Japan, mainland Korea, but also off the coast of Vladivostok in winter. And, you know, these women historically have, had the greatest ability of any human group on earth to withstand cold. So that's why they could dive in that water in these little homemade bathing suits that they would sew. But um, at the first scene, I mean, the, when I was writing the scene where Yongsuka and Mija are going to the port to 
do their, their, you know, diving this, this uh, itinerant work for the first time, I just had this thought, well, how do they get from their village to the port? Right. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, you right. know, they didn't have cars. They didn't have buses. Uh, did they take a boat? Did they walk? Did, you know, how did they do it? And so by that time, I now knew a lot of people on Jeju, and I sent some emails, and one of them was to a researcher who had access to an oral history project that was done in the 1970s. And so all of those women that they interviewed back then are gone. But within 24 hours, I had five of the of transcripts from five different women describing the five different ways that they had gotten from their villages to the port. And mm. so in, in that sense, you know, research just continues all the way through because sometimes when you're writing, it's just like this thought of, oh, wait. There's, there's another know, question, yeah. How, yeah, how do, how do you get there? Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I don't know if you remember this, but I met you several years ago at an event. You were speaking here in San Diego. And at the time, I was just starting to offer personal branding. It's something I thought was really important for authors. And since then, by the way, I use you as an example of a really well-branded author in all the classes I teach. But, but I remember you saying at the time that you didn't even realize you had a brand, but mm -hmm. your publisher did. Mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if now, are you more aware of your brand these days? And what would you say defines you as a writer? Well, so it's, that's a word I still struggle with. <laughs> the writer or the brand? The brand, that brand. Oh, yeah. like, I, 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 because I just don't see myself that way, you know, because right. then, then all of a sudden it's like you're a product or the mm -hmm. work is a product. And I, mm -hmm. and yes, it is true. I am creating a product, but I don't think of it that way. I just don't. And mm. so it's, it's, um, but uh, okay. So, so nevertheless, apparently <laughs> I do have a brand and I, what I am told, and, and I do think that there's some, I mean, I think this is true that, that I'm telling stories about women, um, that people haven't necessarily heard before, uh, mm -hmm. different cultures, different types of accomplishments, um, different, you know, um, the, the Snowflower and the Secret, in the, sorry, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, you know, about uh, these writing women in Yunnan province, or women just generally, who had created, used, a, and used a secret writing system the only writing system to have been found anywhere in the world used exclusively by women, and they kept it a secret for a thousand years. Uh, in Peony and Love, the writing women um, in the mid-17th century in the Yangtze Delta and how extraordinary they were, not just in China, but in the world at that time, and that we don't really you know, know much about them, but they were amazing, really amazing. Um, with the sea women, or the island of sea women, it's the same kind of thing. You know, these these free divers from this one island. It's a matrifocal society. So again, trying to tell these stories, and I guess I always say that have been lost, forgotten, or deliberately covered up about women, and then mm -hmm. really tied closely to that is the relationships, the unique relationships that women have. And, yeah. um, you know, mothers and daughters, sisters, friends. And I think particularly friendship is, I, I would say people tell me, probably mm -hmm. is the most important to them. And so I, you know, this is a unique relationship that we have in our lives. And it's unlike any other. Um, We'll tell a friend something that we wouldn't tell our mother or our boyfriend or our husband or our lover or our children. It's a very particular kind of intimacy. And whenever you are that vulnerable, um, you are leaving yourself open to be hurt. 
And so mm. I would say that I'm interested in sort of the dark shadow side of women's relationships. Um, but is all of that a brand? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I think a brand, you're supposed to be able to say it in a word, right? Well, yeah. Um, I think that it's different when it comes to an author's brand. You know, what, do, mm-hmm. what, do, what can a reader expect from Lisa C.'s work? And for me, it's always, you know, deeply researched, lyrical, strong female bonds, you know, and until... So you said you it know, much better than I women. did. <laughs> but that's the point that you made when I saw you talk is that your, your publisher who was marketing your books, they knew your brand. Mm-hmm. And that's what's important. You write from an authentic place. And so for you, it doesn't feel like a brand because it's just you. Mm-hmm. But that is in and of itself, you know, your voice and the way in which you tell your stories is a brand. Um, I think it's important yeah, and for I authors. I do think that the part about the history and the research is really important. That It's really I, important. I'm not going to yeah. say I haven't made a mistake here and there, but I, I am so <laughs> careful and so... I really, I think people trust that yeah. what I've written yeah. is true, and and that is yeah. part of why my the acknowledgments at the back are so long, but also why I put so much up on my website is so that people, mm-hmm. if they think, oh, did this four three incident actually happen, and then did they can make go this to up? my website, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and people do yeah. ask me that, like, did that really happen? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Or and for different things, and I'll and then they can go and look it up, and and I'll have as much you know. I don't want to overwhelm people, but at least it's a starting place if they want to do more research. They can. Yeah, and I find that that's very generous of you. Um, you know, speaking of strong female bonds, I'm I'm curious how your relationships with the women in your life, your mother Carolyn, and. And other women have seeped into the bonds that you create between your characters. So I was, yeah, my mom was a writer and I have, um, I actually have three, either I'm an only child or I'm one of four, right? So I'm the only <laughs> child of my mother and father, but I have a former stepsister that we've known each other since we were three and four, a half sister that's my mother's daughter and a half sister that's my father's daughter. So I think I've got the sister thing down, just having lived it. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, yes, I I was a daughter, so I definitely lived that. But the thing that to me is sort of interesting is that writing about friendship and and these long friendships, you know, Snowflower Mm -hmm. and the Secret Fan since they're seven. I think also in the Island of Sea Women, they're friends since they're seven. Um, In China Dolls, they all meet when they're about, 18. Uh, And these are lifelong relationships. And so, you know, why do I write about that? I don't have that. I've never had that experience. Um, But Mm. my mother did and my sister did. So Clara, my sister, one of my sisters, she's had a best friend since they were three months old. And mm, they, wow. you know, both recently turned 50. So this is a, you know, that's a long time <laughs> to be best friends. And then my mother had two, I mean, there were three of them, you know, these, these two friends that they were, they met in seventh grade and all the way, you know, all the way until my mom passed away and Joan and Jackie are just still continuing the tradition. So in a way, my not having that uh, was hard on me because I saw what it was like, you know, with them, with, with my mm. mom and with my sister, Clara. And, but I also, with a little distance, saw the pros and real cons sometimes. Right. And, right. Ha- you know, and over the course of 50 years, or in my mom's case, it was what, like 70 years that they knew each other not everybody was getting along all the time and they're you know like with my mother and one of her friends they didn't talk for about 20 years but then you know came back together in the last few years and so i to me all of that is really fascinating um but you know i don't have that <laughs> and don't, don't don't we do that as writers like we create these worlds that we're so fascinated with or you know that they have mm-hmm. an effect on us and i can i can see how that 
would would play in your yeah, life. And it's a kind of longing, right? I mean, it's yeah, like, well, I right. can't have it in real life, so at least I can have it. On I'm going the to page. create it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm going you to know, explore, of, like, what would happen? You know, what it would happen if you right. had that relationship? And yeah, you know, but it's even better, the reality of it. <laughs> Well, yeah, right. Yeah, and you're right. There's always the pros and cons, and those those play well into your stories too. Yeah, I know that you. And I also think. Spoken, can I just say also with? I was just going to say that's also true about emotions too. I think when in your in you know a person's writing that there might be certain emotions that you want to explore, but you can explore it through the writing. Mm, absolutely. In the same yeah. way that you're exploring a kind of relationship or maybe a, you know, a job or a situation that you might not have in your own life, but you, you are putting yourself in it because you, you want to explore it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And your character, your, your readers get to explore that as well through your characters. Mm-hmm. You, you, I think I've, I've heard you say that your grandmother, Stella, appears you know, inspires a lot of your female characters in your books. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to to your grandmother Stella and how her her presence in your life? And and actually, did you know Stella? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I want to hear more about your grandmother Stella. So for, for I am a grandmother now, <laughs> and I congratulations. Think, um, how she was with me is sort of what I aspire to, to, you know, aspire to, um, that she, and, and we can't always say this even about our parents or, you know, other people, but she loved me unconditionally. And I think that's pretty rare in life where we're truly loved unconditionally. And, mm. Um, so anyway, she, my grandmother, she, she had a pretty hard childhood. She, um, her parents, ha- you know, had to get married. Uh, they were very young. They, I'm just going to have to put this out there. They were not good parents. Um, they would just pin like an address on her coat. Mm. And then from the time she was six years old and like stick her on a train by herself Whoa. to go stay with somebody. <laughs> so she wow. was really on, really, I mean, you know, t- out there by herself starting when she was six. When she was 16, they sent her to Los Angeles to take care of an aunt who was dying of TB. Oh, you know, that's fun for a 16-year-old. <laughs> right. Um, and, but she went to art school. Uh, she married my grandfather. Of course, it, he was Chinese, so it was against the law. And mm. they went to Mexico to get married. So I, you know, she was, um, I guess the word we would use today is kind of bohemian in, in some ways, <laughs> but also very traditional American at the same time. And she loved, and I think, again, because she'd been traveling since she was six years old, she loved to travel. And she mm. just, you know, she she traveled around the world a couple of times they had no money. Um, and so maybe that's part of why they would, you know, she would do things like go to India third and travel around India in third class. I mean, this is, that's hardcore travel. Anyway, she, so she has appeared in every book. So in On Gold Mountain, she's my actual grandmother. In the mysteries that I wrote, she's the ne- neighborhood committee director. In Snowflower and the Secret Fan, <laughs> she's the matchmaker. In Peony uh-huh. and Love, she's the grandmother. In Shanghai Girls, she's Madame Wu. Madame, wow. and then in Dreams of Joy, there's a, a character whose name I'm not remembering right now, but she's in there. <laughs> and 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 I could just go through every single one. And and there she is. I, it's not that yeah. she has the same job or looks like my grandmother, but there's certain aspects of her character that I mm. will use. Mm. And um, also, she could be, my grandmother could be very cranky. She could be really, <laughs> she could be in a, she could be pretty harsh. Um, so she mm. wasn't just all lovey-dovey <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So 
but kind of snide in a way, it, or, or mm. not snide, that's not the, but she could say that she could make a sharp remark, let's just say that. And then she also um, didn't like to go out. And I can remember so many times saying to her, well, you know, you'll have fun once you get there. And she would, you know, she's like, she'd be dragging her, kicking and screaming, but then she'd have fun when she got there. So the, those funny. are the kinds of things where you can draw on a little, you know, some aspect of a personality. And why that's meant so much to me is she's now been gone for 26 years. Well, that allows me to visit her and be with her while I'm writing. No, oh, yeah, that's really beautiful. One of the things I love most about you, Lisa, is how incredibly generous you are with your time, specifically to your readers. I mean, you personally respond to every email, as far as I can tell. I do. And yep. you <laughs> you responded to my email. Thank you. And no, you I do respond to everyone. <laughs> everyone. I mean, that's kind of rare. And, you know, you, you book clubs either online or even in person, if possible. And I you know, so actually, it's no I don't go, I don't go in person to book clubs anymore, but I do talk to book clubs on Skype and I talk on to Skype. book clubs all, you know, literally around the world. And which is one of the fun things that you can do. I mean, I won't get up at three in the morning for, for them. Um, so some places there <laughs> draw limited. the line there. Yeah, I right. do draw the line, but I've talked to book clubs in Australia, in Germany, in Israel, once yeah. to a book club in Iran. Um, but most of them are here in the U.S. And um, there was one day last year where I spoke to four book clubs in one day. Wow. On Skype. Yeah. That's so awesome. I do them by Skype. I mean, it used to be I'd do it on, you know, a conference call. And now everybody does it on Skype. And, mm -hmm. and it's really fun because I'm kind of, you know, I'm in the living room with everybody. I mean, yeah. there's an aspect to that, you know, where I'm just in the living room with everybody and we're just chatting and it's, it, I really enjoy it. I think that's part of your brand too, your generosity. Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> Coming from a branding person. <laughs> I wonder, you know, it seems to speak to the exceptional bonds that you, you create between your characters. You know, it makes sense to me. Um, you seem to care well, deeply I for both your characters and your readers. Yeah, I don't mean to sound doubtful about that. But I, it, I actually, I wonder if it, so let me just rephrase this. My son, when he was in high school, did, built my website. And the website I have today is just still an ongoing evolution of that original high school project. Wow. And That's awesome. So it actually was one <laughs> of the first, beautiful, one of the first author websites. But nobody ever looked at it back then. You know, I nobody mm -hmm. read my books back then. So uh, I did have a thing where you know you could write to me, and I might get two emails a week. And I was, oh, this is pretty good. I'm getting two emails a week. <laughs> and I, I do think that when writers are starting out, you've got to try to say yes to everything, and. I, I remember once with, I mean, this is the smallest event I've ever done. I went out to Whittier for On Gold Mountain. And so my first book, it was raining and four people showed up. So mm. here's the thing, though. You, you, I mean, it, that was depressing. I mean, it really, because, you know, Whittier, yeah. that's a lot of driving in traffic. And, um, but I feel like, okay, I came and they came and it's up to me to give it my all. And mm -hmm. here's the thing. Those four people, they still come to events. You know, they still, wow. come, they still read my books. They still, they'll write to me now and, and you know, say, oh, I remember that terrible night. There were only four of us. It's like, <laughs> yes, I'll never forget it. I mean, I, yeah, thanks I'll for reminding never forget me. that night. <laughs> <laughs> but but that you can make a connection to readers. And mm. I think when you, I mean, it's so hard to start out. You know, you start from, I mean, yes, there are those books where, you know, it's a first book and somebody pays a million dollars for it and it's an instant bestseller. And that happens every once in a while. Um, but it, it's that that's like winning the lottery. 
you know, that just doesn't happen to the other 180,000 books that are being published every single year. So, you know, it does happen, but everybody else, you ha- you're starting from zero and you just have to go a reader at a time. And so yeah. anyway, so there I was, I had my little website and people would, um, you know, I'd get like two emails a week and I would answer them. And, and then, you know, then I had a thing, well, oh yes, if they wanted me to come and visit them in their book club, I would drive really a long way to go visit. And, and you're making a connection with 10 readers, you know? Mm. Well, mm-hmm. now it's completely different, but it just evolved over time. And so, you know, oh gosh, today, this morning, when I looked, I think I had something like 50 emails on the, you know, on wow. the sort of fan email So it address. went from four a week to That's 50 a daunting. day. I mean, you know, and I don't answer them necessarily uh-huh. all in a day. I can't. Um, you know what? We and, lost but, you, you know, for and so just people are second, asking Lisa. if I can do an event or will I join their book club? But I also get a lot of emails um, that are that again go back to the research. Um, how can I find out more? Uh, I'm interested in this particular aspect. You know, where where would you send me? I'm in high school. I'm in college. I'm in graduate school, and I'm working on such and such. What advice would you give me? Lots of mm. email like that, um, nice. and then and then also people sharing their personal stories, and mm. you know they're different. Um, obviously, those those kinds of letters are going to be different depending on the book. So, with um, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, for example, so many people wrote to me about how they had a best friend, and then what happened and how they, you know, hadn't spoken in 40 years. And was there a way that you could actually try to get, you know, rekindle the friendship? I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many emails like that I've had wow. over the years. Um, with Tigrel of Hummingbird Lane, because that's about, you know, a lot of it is about adoption from China. Uh, lots and lots of emails from either people who have adopted from China or people who are thinking about adopting from China, the relatives of people who've adopted from China, uh, mm-hmm. and then a lot of email from young women who were adopted from China saying, this is the first book that I've read that really reflects my own experience. I didn't know wow. how to put this into words, but you mm. did it, you know, and, and then how did you do that? And w- are there any organ, you know, does this organization that you wrote about, does that actually exist? And how can I find it? So those wow. kinds of things. And then now with Island of Sea Women, uh, a very, you know, again, very different kind set of email, which is mostly from um, Korean Americans and also people in Korea, because uh, the book has been published there that have to do with the history of this island. And because the uh, so-called 4-3 incident was kept a secret for 50 years, even people who grew up in Korea um, never heard of it. So, you know, earlier when we were talking about, oh, you know, when people say, did this really happen? Even people who were, you know, lived there didn't know, not, not on the island, people who lived on the island knew what happened, but you know, even on mainland Korea, didn't know that it had it had happened because there was so much propaganda built up around the idea that this was just a hoax. And so, mm-hmm. um, so a good part of that is like, is that did that really happen? And how can I find out more? And then the other part of that set of email is, I was from there. This is what happened to my family. Oh. Wow. And and so, you know, I think every book just has this um people react respond to something that I can't necessarily anticipate. Um mm-hmm. but I and just one last thing about the email. <laughs> I know I'm going on a long time about this. No, it's great. But you Keep know, there's something now. weird about the internet in the sense that you put stuff out there and I don't think you necessarily think someone's going to read it. 
So mm. people will re- do really just like open their hearts and share unbelievable stuff with me in their emails. Mm. But mm-hmm. I think it's because they don't think I'm really going to read it. They just think they're sending right. it somewhere. You may be right, yeah. And then when yeah. I write back, they, you know, people say, I didn't they're think shocked. you were going to read this. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't, and I really didn't think you were going to respond. So, and certainly don't uh, put it in I, a book. Well, <laughs> and actually, uh, just the other day, and and now you know, and then sometimes you know, I respond, and then now all of a sudden you're having a long conversation for sometimes a, you know like a week, and sometimes for years. And mm. uh, a woman, so in the Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, I write about a concept or um, that the medical profession has come up with to label not all, but some girls who were adopted from China, which is grateful, but angry. Mm. And this woman wrote and said, um, you know, that you've, you've used a term. I understand it's really about adoption, but it, I, I understand it. And it's just given me the words for something that I've been experiencing myself. And she um, had, has um, colon cancer. And so she was, you know, grateful for her doctors, but she's so angry at the same time. And, and, and so we've just, right. you know, we've been writing back and forth and, mm. and um, I just, I don't know. I, I feel I'm so grateful that people want to tell me things and that something in my work has inspired them to reach out because that takes a lot, you know, you have to go look it up and, you know, think about what you're going to say. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I just, I don't know. It really, I just feel really honored by that. That's beautiful. What are you most proud of in your work? Oh, I <laughs> was a groan. Oh, uh, <laughs> Uh, I really, I do, uh, I, for me, what I'm most proud of, of course, if you ask me tomorrow, I might say something different, but I think it is the history and the research that I've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason I'm saying that today is uh, this last weekend, I spoke at the California Antiquarian Book Fair, where I was on a panel about um, the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote. And um, one of the women there is a, a, she's now retired, but a professor from UCLA. And she, she said to me, you are such an incredible historian. And I teared <laughs> up. And the reason is when when I my my mother was a PhD, my mother and my father, my stepfather, my stepmother, there's a second stepmother, my second stepfather, all of them had PhDs. And so when I was young, you know, there was a I mean, I did go to college, but there was a, a fair amount of pressure to like keep going and get your sure, PhD yes. because like that's what we all do. <laughs> And I was like, I would never do that. I, I, you know, I, I'm not <laughs> academic. I, I'm just not that good at school. I'm just, that's just not for me. And, and, and yet, and, and then there was a time when my mom said to me, you know, you turned out to be the most academic of all of us. Right. And, and so when this woman said that the other day, it was like, it's like one thing for your mom to say it, but for sure. a, a woman that you really, and I did love and admire my mother, but for a woman who was like, not my mother, um, but, you know, highly respected historian to say that to me, I, that's why I kind of teared up. So that's why I'm answering today. If you call me tomorrow, well, I'll come up with a, I'm sure I'll have a whole other response. And that's totally fair. Well, and by the same token, what has your biggest challenge been in your writing career? Well, I think it depends on when it was, you know, when, what year I was in of it. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I have written different types of books. And the first book, nonfiction about my family, then the three mystery thrillers. And those books, you know, I, it, 
I, they always called me a critically acclaimed author. And mm. what that means is you get really great reviews, but nobody reads your books. <laughs> okay, so I was a critically <laughs> acclaimed author. And then with when I started Snowflower and the Secret Fan, everyone told me no one's going to read that book. I mean, everyone. Every, my agent, my editor, my publisher, my mother, other writers, they were just like, you know, no one's going to read that book. It takes wow. place in the past. It takes place in China. It's about women. It's about women's mm. friendship. Nobody's going to read it. Nobody <laughs> wants to know about it. And did they and realize so they what, were throwing fuel on the fire? Yeah, right. Yeah. I, actually, it wasn't that. It was more like, well, okay, so no one's going to read it. I don't have to think about who's going to read it. And so since no one's going to read it, I'm just going to truly, truly write the book I want. And, yeah. and I just really didn't think at all about the audience. Not that I ever thought that much about it, but I obviously must have thought about it more because I really made this very deliberate decision at the time. And so... I also, I mean, I really went deep inside me to write that in a way mm. that you wouldn't necessarily with a, with a mystery, right? Mm -hmm. So, of course, everyone turned out to be wrong. And, and that <laughs> book was, you know, like a really huge international bestseller. And it did, it changed my life. Uh, I, I feel like I'm so fortunate that that happened to me on my fifth book and not my first for some of the things we've been talking about that, you know, yeah. you, that you, I, I just, I, I just don't even, I can, I can contemplate what that would be like, but I can't, I, I can't, I can't see living it <laughs> and having <laughs> the respect for the readers and just again, all mm. the things we've already been talking about. So the thing is, I, I did have this feeling when I was writing it, like, okay, I know how many books, you know, the mysteries sell. Um, so I know I won't get to that number, but maybe it'll just be 5,000 people. Maybe mm. 5,000 people will, will buy this book and they're going to be the right 5,000 people. <laughs> and I, again, I just think that when I sort of let go of, the the market maybe i don't even know how to describe like publishing and all the other sure. concerns one has and and just went deep and so that success for me anyway um made me made me want to go deeper mm. um made me want to again sort of cut to the bone to to try to go deeper to look at relationships, to look at emotions, to look at these particular moments in history or culture. And that I should always think, well, maybe only 5,000 people will buy it, but they'll be the right 5,000. Because wow. that's what you want. You don't, I mean, I, I mean, I've been obviously extraordinarily lucky and to have have the career that I have now and that lots and lots of people buy my books and read them. I, I understand that and I'm really, really grateful for it. But when I sit down to write, I can't think about all those people. I just have to go inside me, inside myself. Yeah. And, mm. and, you know, sometimes people will ask me like, what, is, what, is, what do you want the reader to get out of this? What do you want? The, and I, that comes up. Oh, I mean, that's a question that comes up a lot. And it's like, I, you know, I'm sorry. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but I don't care. I'm really <laughs> thinking about, this is like a personal journey for me. Sure. And, and I'm not really, th I'm not think. I'm sorry, but I'm not thinking about the reader when I'm writing. I'm thinking about my where I want to go and what I want to discover and it's mm -hmm. you know going back to what you said earlier when uh, about you know do you want to explore a particular kind of relationship or a particular emotion that's where I'm going that has right. nothing to do 
with the reader. That just is my personal journey. And that's why, I, you know, I just think, oh, you know, I hope some people want to come along for the ride with me. <laughs> yeah. And people trust that you will take them on that ride. Mm-hmm. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. Um, it's been really lovely just hearing about your process. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. You can learn more about Lisa at her website, lisac.com. That's L-I-S-A-S-E-E.com. And you can follow her on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'll include the links on the website. You can buy The Island of Sea Women, which is available in paperback everywhere books are sold on March 10th. Be sure to follow and rate The Premise wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, thanks for joining us. Are you an author with a story to tell, but you're just not sure how to get that story out? Guess what? You don't have to do it alone. Marnie Friedman is an incredible writing coach. She offers personalized support and expertise to guide you from a kernel of an idea to completion. Visit MarniFriedman.com to learn more. That's M-A-R-N-I-F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N.com. This episode is brought to you by Monkey C Media, a small boutique design firm offering award-winning websites, book cover designs, book trailers, and photography services. And full disclosure, we love what we do. Chad and I founded Monkey C Media in 2004, and we're still going strong. Visit monkeycmedia.com. That's M-O-N-K-E-Y, the letter C, media.com to see how we can help you promote your book, Build a powerful online presence. Mm-hmm. What else you got, Chad? Uh, let's see. We've got the San Diego Writer Festival. San Diego Writers Festival. There That's are many writers. <laughs> and they're a proud sponsor of our Premise podcast as well. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be awesome. This year's keynote is Scott Gimple. He's the head writer of The Walking Dead. And the festival is free. It's open to the public. There's going to be educational panels and workshops, famous authors up-and-coming authors, kids and teen programming, and live theater performances. Oh, and there's music. Oh, and there's food. Oh, but wait, there's more. You also get a copy of our home game. Oh, you're silly. But wait, there is more. There will be literary agents taking pitches from authors looking to get their books published. The festival is about building community and celebrating storytelling of all kinds. It's happening April 4th, 2020 at the Coronado Public Library. (laughs) 